Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to World's Lights, Shunma 98. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I do hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, as you heard, Shunma 98, getting there to our... Number 100th show, we're looking forward to that. And on this show, I have some, the biggest announcements I think I've made since I've probably been starting Starship so far. Do you know what I mean? It's To me, it's that big and it kind of means that much to us. So I'm hoping if you keep on listening, you'll get to hear it and you'll you kind of support us. And I think, I guess this show is when you think about it, it's going to be kind of a lot of supporting, you know, the Starship so far like financially you know it's it seems to be that kind of show and it's it's not really it never was meant to be that but it's just it's came up and i'll explain later with you know the content in the show as well so i hope you'll stick around and listen to supporting the starship sofa and probably the biggest announcement i have made on starship sofa look out for that Give you a heads up what's coming in today's show then. And we have some poetry by Dave over at Ad Astral Podcast. Fact articles, which is called Support Our Zines. And it's by Damien G. Walter. And I'll play it and I'll, I'll go into more detail, do you know? So there's our first announcement. Flash Fiction comes from Matthew Stevens and he's narrated itself a great little short story. Main Fiction comes from a gentleman called Hanu Rajani and this story came from Interzone and Interzone are putting out some amazing work there. Really kind of takes you to the edges and, and a little bit more, you know, just the kind of biz- bizarreness really of it all. Then we have probably the announcement. I'll make my announcement after the Main Fiction. So, you know, get on your iPods and start, start scrolling. <laughs> Next, we've got a fact article by our good friend Matthew Sanborn Smith. That is show number 98. I hope you will stick around and, as ever, enjoy the show. First up, then, a little bit of poetry by Dave Burnham. This has literally just come into the show. So, like. 20 seconds ago, and I've just emailed Dave back and said, can I play it? So check out Dave's podcast. There will be a link on the front of the website. Dave, great timing. Thank you so much. A one-horse town. Written and read by DJ Burnham. Tombstone 2 was a mining town on the wild frontiers of space, where whiskey and Martian moonshine were consumed by the case. At first it had a brothel, a casino and three bars. 
but then came the settlers and the prospectors' last hurrah. Boomtown turned respectable. Mob rule got the elbow. Lewd behaviour was deemed unacceptable, as was vulgar innuendo. Homesteads were built on the edge of town as more staked a claim. Airtight, sprawled suburbia in the endless sulfuric rain. With one solitary form of transport, they called their hover bus horse. It took the ladies shopping, the kids to school, and ferried their growing workforce. Then came a treaty with the neighbours on the nearby planet of Grok. Their arrival did no favours to the short-lived Belle Epoque. Hushed whispers and disapproving glances from all who passed by. The tentacles they could live with, but my God, all those eyes! The grunts and whistles and slurring whenever they tried to speak set intolerance and xenophobia stirring, compounded by their horrid physique. They were banned from eating in public. It made their fellow diners feel sick. With the sight, the smells and noises, ugh, their dietary habits were amoebic. One morning, Mrs. Jackson got a call from Horses' early driver. The only hover bus had broken down, and the mechanic couldn't revive her. Now, little Timmy was a good lad, and really not a skyver, but a day off got the thumbs down as she dressed him like a deep sea diver. A packed lunch in his satchel, filled with electronic books, with attendance at school contractual. He gave her a dirty look. She licked her hanky and rubbed at a smudge on the side of his nose, then pulled on his acid-proof outfit, lest he should decompose. She strapped on the oxygen tank and checked the gas with a hiss. Pausing with a fishbowl helmet, she gave him a goodbye kiss. With his head in a dome and his heart in his mouth, Timmy turned to leave. The airlock groaned and opened, and he turned in hope of reprieve. But his mother waved goodbye through the window by the top deck, as the boy set off for school on the second furthest trek. He was halfway there when disaster struck, and he slipped on his metal-clad foot. Landing on his back, he ran out of luck as his air supply went kaput. The rain fell hard and unrelenting. The severed hose flailed about, with precious oxygen rapidly venting. The little boy wheezed and passed out. The choir warmed up for the angels' songs. As they weighed up the cost, Timmy's life flashed its rights and wrongs, and it seemed that all was lost. Kachuk Krun had the furthest to walk, trotting in six thick rubber waders. 
He was fed up with behind-the-back talk about his family being alien invaders. His parents felt he should integrate, get a human-based education. Detractors thought he should emigrate and called him an overgrown crustacean. Kachuk Grun spotted the crumpled shape, and then he saw him twitch. It was the unmistakable form of an ape, there, at the base of a ditch. Six legs made light work of the slope, and he tapped a tentacle on the glass. An eye flickered open and registered hope as Timmy recognised one of his class. In order to save Timmy from certain death, Kachuk Grun used his alien powers. His huge lungs drew a deep breath. It was one that could last him for hours. He unplugged the hose from his own tank and used a spare tentacle to block up the pipe. As the oxygen flowed, Timmy smiled in thanks, forgetting his previous gripe. Kachuk Grun was hailed a hero, became Timmy's newfound best friend. The event opened a window, no more differences to transcend. There was a grok and human alliance, harmony below acid showers. They shared strong bonds with defiance and partied into the small hours. Alienist attitudes were all in the past, and Tombstone 2 abandoned former hostilities. But somehow, you just know, it couldn't last. And so came the reptiles from Alpha Centauri B. First up then, little fact article by Damien G. Walter. Damien G. Walter is a regular guest over on the Sofa Notes and he's become a, a good friend to myself and to, you know, the whole community in Starship Sofa and the Sofa Notes. Oh, can you hear the, the horns honking outside? Oh, something's going on. Anyway, Damien wrote this article. Damien writes for The Guardian Online. And his knowledge of kind of English science fiction and every kind of science fiction, do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's amazing. And he came up with this idea, you know, and he, he showed us this post that he wrote over at his, his blog. And it was called Support Our Zines. And, you know, I wish I had thought of it, to be quite honest. I thought it was very good. But I'm going to play it now and then I'll jump back in and we'll have a little more chat. <laughs> Damien, over to you, sir. Hello, I am Damien G. Walter writer of weird and speculative fiction, graduate of the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop, and blogger for The Guardian newspaper. I'm here to talk to you today about a very simple idea to show our support for the magazines and other publications that produce the stories that we all love to read and listen to. Just last week on my blog, I put a call out for suggestions of magazines that As a fan of science fiction and fantasy, I really should be reading. My subscriptions have lapsed recently. It's been a very busy year. So this week I wanted to renew some subscriptions and start a few new ones. I wanted to do this because I get a huge amount of joy from reading and listening to good stories and want to contribute to keeping the publications I like going. 
I think a lot of people feel the same. So why don't more of us subscribe and donate to our favourite publications? More on that idea in a moment. But first, where am I choosing to invest my hard-earned pounds and dollars? Over the last few years, I've had subscriptions with most of the major print publications. Interzone, two years running, Asimov's, and also fantasy and science fiction. For the last year, however, I've been reading the e-edition of Weird Tales, so decided to take this opportunity to take out a, a subscription to the much prettier Dead Tree edition. I'll still continue to purchase e-editions of Interzone and the others through FictionWise, but editor Anne Vandermeer has made Weird Tales a must-read for me. In the world of the small press zine, I'll admit to some partisan loyalties. Electric Velocipede is, for my money, not just the best zine, but the most influential SF publication currently on the market. I might have considered Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Sybil's Garage or Shimmer. But really, EV was always going to win. John Klimmer consistently spots excellent stories and fascinating new writers, which is exactly what I want from a zine. Online zines have established themselves as some of the most fertile grounds for exciting new SF stories. Alongside the first on the block, Strange Horizons, Clark's World and Fantasy Magazines have also established themselves as first-tier publications by any estimation. I've also found great reading pleasure in Farago's Wainscot and Serendipity, among many others. But for this year, my donated donor is going to Clark's World, which manages a consistent excellence that few other magazines are quite managing to match. I listen to an increasing amount of fiction in wonderful audio via my iPod. There are now some truly excellent SF podcasts to choose from, not least the wonderful Drabblecast, where Norm Sherman reigns supreme as the world's top narrator and singer of Bardles. I might commission a song somewhere down the line for a special occasion, but for this year I've stretched my budget to manage monthly donations to Starship Sofa and Escape Artists, producers of Escape Pod. Podcastle and Pseudopod. Escape Pod, in particular, has been a massive source of inspiration to me over the years. It was my real introduction to SF short fiction, as I'm sure it has been for many people. With the news that Escape Artist is constituting as a non-profit to take its business forward, now seems like the time to give them as much support as possible. So, why didn't I do this all before? And why don't more people subscribe and donate to their favourite publications? I'm going to suggest that it's simply because we don't think about it. We pick up magazines and at cons and elsewhere, we read online and we download our podcasts. We're all happy to subscribe and donate where we can. No one expects anyone to pay or give anything that they can't afford. But the actual chore of filling out the form is too easy to overlook in the daily rush of life. So, I think we need to do something to remind ourselves how much we love our zines of all kinds and want to support them. I think we need a Support Our Zines Day, or SOZD for short. A day when everyone who's enjoyed reading and listening to them all year puts down cash and subscribes or donates to their favourite publication. I think we should support it through the blog, 
and on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else we can. And I think that this day should be on the 1st of October. Support our Zines Day, 1st of October 2009. What do you think? Come and tell me on my blog, damonjewalter.wordpress.com or comment on the Starship Sofa forums or even talk about it on Twitter and Facebook and the rest of the blogosphere. Let us know your opinions. Support our Zines Day, 1st of October 2009. Thank you very much. There you go. Like I say, I wish I'd thought of that idea, you know, like support our signs. And it's not just, do you know what I mean? Obviously, it's kind of Starship Silver needs kind of funds to survive, but it's it's all over. Do you know, and Damien hit on a point there, and it's, I do exactly the same. Do you know what I mean? And it's not like, say, I don't want to kind of donate, I don't want to kind of support. It's just, you play it and you, you just, it's it's life, you know, you listen to it and you're kind of, right, I should look after them and support them. And then, you know, another one comes down and you never kind of do. And I'm honestly as guilty as anything as that. Do you know? But like I say, Damien puts it in such a way, you know, if you like, just take the time out and support a few of your, your kind of, your zines or your, your, your ones that you really admire, because the overall good feeling and the overall content that you're getting nowadays, you know, since this kind of, I kind of call it the, the iPod revolution, you know, and I came to kind of science fiction, I came back into kind of science fiction through that, you know, in the discovery of it, like audio stories. And I do get such a pleasure, you know, out of, I mean, God, I get such a pleasure out of just doing the whole lot. Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of, I'm, I suppose I'm lucky in the way that now my kind of inbox is full of these writers, do you know what I mean? That's just like take you to another level with the kind of writing of them and, you know, chatting them on a kind of a daily day basis, you know, and kind of working with them. Do you know what I mean? Bloody hell. But getting back to kind of Damien's, you know, like request and proposal to make like a, a sign date, you know what I mean? And like you say, go out there and support, you know, not just Starship Sofa. Do you know what I mean? Or, you know, if you can only afford one, you know, and it doesn't have to be me, you know, support Escape Pod. Support Clark's World, you know, we're all out there kind of pushing our hearts because we just love science fiction and fantasy and everything like that, this genre, and we just want to kind of get it out there and keep it going, do you know what I mean? And like you see, the best example now is because of this internet and this technology, it's just got a whole new life, you know, and trust us when I see I get writers, you know, just expressing the feelings of how much, you know, Starship Sova has helped them and, you know, probably drawn a crowd over to their website, you know, and, and I'm talking like big writers here, do you know what I mean? So that's amazing. But we need support. Drabblecast, that is a fine one. Support that, you know what I mean? Norm Sherman, probably the nicest, quirkiest guy you're going to meet on the planet, do you know what I mean? I've just listened to him and I've listened to his shows. An amazing singer, do you know what I mean? If you haven't checked out Drabblecast, do you know what I mean? There is a, another fine example of like someone who's committed to kind of putting out this work and who's committed to kind of really just sharing everything. Do you know what I mean? It's up there and all we ask is help her out a little bit, you know? And it's funny, I heard a couple of days ago, and it's like you say, it's all tying in. I heard a couple of days ago, this recession that we're in, it's called... Oh, we're calling it over in the UK. I don't know what it's like in, in America or anywhere like that. But we call it the lipstick recession. Now, I don't know if anyone's heard of the lipstick recession. But it's it's based on the idea, like, although we're in this recession, 
you know, a lady goes out and just treats herself to something little and something inexpensive like a lipstick. And it, it has this, even though we're in this kind of recession, it has this kind of feel-good factor. Now, that isn't an example. Do you know what I mean? If what Starship Sofa's doing, if what all the other podcasts, Escape Pod, Drabblecast, you know, Clark's World, all the Strange Horizons, if what they're doing just makes you feel good, you know, support them in just such a little way that it's it just helps with all and we get on to the kind of Damien's, you know, Zine Day and make it like a special day and, you know, support our Zines. <sighs> Been on me high horse, do you know what I mean? But that's just one of the announcements, you know what I mean? Please support her, but listen now to the other announcement that's coming as well. Let's get... <laughs> I think I should put my cap down... Me, me bloody penny jar and we'll play some science fiction this is fantastic flash fiction by matthew stevens matthew stevens 46 he's a hospice chaplain and a part-time musician currently in a trio playing and singing standards he lives in houston texas with his wife becky of 16 years matthew says he enjoys studying foreign languages and taking in the occasional zombie movie i hate I am scared to death of zombies, films, anything like that. I cannot see the pleasure of it. And Grant's been harking on a few times to play like zombie stories and that. But I literally am. I'm frightened of them. Do you know what I mean? I'm a 42 year old guy. I'm frightened. I'm frightened of the dark. I really am. But I'm terrified of zombies. I've seen that 20, is it 23, 24 weeks and something weeks, 22 weeks later? Yeah. That disturbed me for ages. I hate zombies. I am scared. Stiff hairs on the back of my neck are going up now. But anyways, back to Matthew's story. Sorry, Matthew, rambling on through your bio there. And it's narrated by Matthew as well. So, there you go. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Ahead of Her Time, written and read by Matthew Stevens. The black crescents of Megan's fingernails pressed hard into the chamois. With athletic strokes, she polished the stainless steel finish of the sixth and final panel of the obelisk. The unfinished structure stood, as if looking over her shoulder, like a smile the size of a phone booth with one tooth missing. The blunt, bare bulbs of her studio judged her work harshly, but they would have to suffice until sunrise. Sitting up to relieve her hands and back, she made eye contact with herself in the mirror surface of the obelisk. She saw how much the project had cost her in lack of sleep and neglected hygiene. Vanity attempted to move a stray strand of hair into place, but it fell right back where dedication and perseverance had left it, hanging. Daunted at the prospect of correcting her own appearance, she opted for the more hopeful and immediate task of completing the obelisk. She took up the chamois again, brushed off the panel, and then got to her feet with minimal complaint from her lower back. She found her work gloves lying inside the obelisk and put them on. Before hoisting the panel from the floor into place, she drew a deep breath, partly for the oxygen, partly to hallow the moment, a solitary commemoration of her allegiance to the work, congratulating herself since there was no one else there to do so. She then raised the panel into place, mumbling to herself an improvised affirmation as she fastened it with a single wing nut, enough to know if the panel fit and if the structure held together. 
enough to show her if it satisfied the original vision. Backing away from the obelisk, she began a detailed examination of the whole and prepared herself for disappointment, for the condemnation she inflicted on herself after each effort to placate inspiration. But now, in spite of herself, she found she could not overcome a genuine sense of satisfaction. She crossed her arms and stepped back, a fresh, fragile arch of surprise raising her eyebrows. And it was from that approving gaze that Megan was distracted by the smell of something burning. The scent of singed hair had overtaken the established odor of spent welding rods, body odor, and room-temperature fast food. She looked at the floor, at the drop cloth, to see if a spark from the cutting torch had perhaps ignited it. And then she heard it, an unsuppressed cough from the direction of the obelisk. Her eyes locked on the structure again, her ears already convinced of what they had heard. Her other senses were fully alert now, but with nothing to meet them. She maintained her admiring distance from the structure, now a safe distance from it, her face twisting into a question mark. And then, as if knowing it had her full attention, the obelisk suddenly and slightly moved. Megan spewed out a clumsy expletive before slapping a hand over her mouth. She almost fell in her attempt to back away. She grimaced as the small of her back collided with the edge of her work table, but her eyes did not leave the structure. She stared at it, as if somehow she was going to see through its walls. And then the obelisk allowed a weak, Hello? Megan froze between inhale and exhale, as if the still-hanging, muffled voice might find her if she made a sound. She tried to see behind the construct without moving from her place. Quickly stretching her neck, tilting her head, she found she could see every side except the back. Then, with measured, silent control, moving her body to one side, she peered around it and saw nothing. She shot a glance at the workspace's only exit. No, she was not going to leave her work alone with, with whoever was in there. Then she thought about the mobile phone that she always left at home because it interrupted her work. Then she moved her eyes back to the obelisk and that one tiny wingnut. Without a sound, she reached behind her and, finding the pointed rasp on the work table, she picked it up. I have a gun, she lied. The obelisk was silent. Do you hear me? I have a gun, she waited shifting the weight of her small frame defiantly, now from foot to foot, the rasp from one hand to the other. I understand. Her insides relaxed slightly, adjusting to the new dynamics of the situation. She believed that he believed that she maintained the upper hand. Now, how did you get in there? I got in here at Kusanka. What? Our, our laboratory. Laboratory? Yes. What time is it? What is the date? What time is it? Who are you? And how did you get in there? I am Brill. <coughs> I got into the structure in the laboratory at Kusanka. Where am I now? In his voice, Megan thought she heard a hint of surprise at her surprise, as if she should have expected his arrival inside her obelisk as soon as she finished it. Impatiently now, she challenged, You are in my obelisk! How did you get into my artwork? That last word sounded a little pretentious to Megan, even as she said it. But she could not think of a better word right away. I am in your artwork? The words came out as uncertain as Megan's had, but genuinely curious. 
Yes, you're in my artwork. Wait a minute, how do you not know where you are? You're... You built this capsule? Yes, she said, now even less patiently, and she liked the word capsule even less than artwork. You are an artist? Yes, she insisted. After a few seconds with no response, Megan prodded angrily. Are you still in there? It makes sense. An artist might have received the transmission and taken it as inspiration. Transmission, she asked, another inartistic word from the obelisk. That made two. The concept of this design. You took it as inspiration. Megan raised just one eyebrow this time and was about to speak when Brill preempted her. I projected the design and you built it. This shape, this obelisk. Projected? Projected from where? From Kusanka. From Kusanka, she surrendered. And you say you sent it to me? Yes. His short, confident answer only magnified the absurdity of the conversation for her. She thought she might get some clarity by starting over. How did you get in there? Well, in fact, I did not get into your structure. I got into an identical structure at Kusanka. At that, Megan's face and tone went flat and defensive. Identical structure? Where? At Kusanka, in the laboratory. You have this piece in your science lab? Yes, that's where I built it. You built it? Yes, of course. Then why would you have sent it to me? How could you have sent it to me? A, a telepathic wavelength. It contained this design. You're a mind reader. No, 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 it's nothing like that. The wavelength is generated mechanically. I don't think it's possible to see someone else's thoughts. Whatever, she thought, as long as the rasp in her hand was still a gun in his mind. But why would you send me the idea of an obelisk? What were you trying to do? It turns out that the laws governing travel into the future are completely different from those involving travel into the past. A key problem is that an object cannot simply enter and occupy space in a time and place where it was not before. Space must be designated for it. That's why we sent this shape. Someone had to build it for us in our past so that we could travel backward in time. Backward in time? Megan blinked to herself. The already bizarre conversation had just sprouted wings and flown out of her mind's reach. This shape, this obelisk, happens to be the most tempodynamic design we have tested for transmission, shaped, shaped like an instant, like a nanosecond. It moves with the help of the wavelength with maximum efficiency over distances, and now, we know, through time. Of course, I'm not talking about the obelisk. I mean the shape of the space inside it. The space where you are now, Megan asked, to keep Brill talking. During his explanation, she had crept to the workspace's sole window, laid her rasp on its sill, and was waving her arms, hoping someone in the parking lot across the street might see her. The sun's crown, however, had not yet shone over the surrounding buildings, and there were no cars there yet. Yes, the space where I am now. We projected the shape to you. <coughs> From the window, Megan looked back at the obelisk, wincing at how painful the last cough had sounded. It occurred to her how cramped it must be for him in there, trapped in the dark with no fresh air. Then, over the shoulder of the obelisk, she noticed the faint silhouette of herself reflected on the far wall. The brightening window was making a frame around her shadow, 
and her drawings on the wall of the studio. After a few seconds, she asked her first informed question. So you inspired me from the future? Inspiration was not our goal, and we had no control over who would receive the transmission. We simply tried to communicate an idea. Her first drawing of the obelisk, now pinned to the wall, next to her silhouette, was rendered on a napkin. She had just finished lunch at a cafe and had had to sketch rapidly to catch the image as it suddenly but steadily manifested in her mind. She had spent the bus ride home trying to place the style of the piece and to remember where she might have seen it before. A mental picture so vivid. Next to the napkin hung its more developed but still crude exploration in charcoal. She had been up all night with that stage of the obelisk's evolution, drawing it from several angles and searching all her books for a photo or drawing of the piece. Her efforts in charcoal had only served to demand the more guided but unfinished drawings next to it, and the two hasty watercolors next to them. Before oil on canvas could be fleshed out, she had surrendered to three dimensions in cardboard, and then to a structure the size of a closet, and then to stainless steel as her medal of choice. The inspiration's medal of choice, Megan corrected herself. The piece had come to her and stayed so clear and distinct over the months compared to anything she had ever done before that she could not help but follow it to completion and, she feared, to the inevitable verdict of plagiarism from those who would see the obelisk with fresh eyes. So it wasn't me. It was you. Well, no. We succeeded in communicating with you, but only an artist... One dedicated and protective of her vision, you captured the transmission, the inspiration, more precisely than with mere dimensions. Megan sensed that his desire to cheer her up had carried him out of his vocabulary and into hers. But, in spite of the bridge he was trying to build, she found it difficult to accept his words. If you had not endured, finished the work, and so exactly... I could not have come here. Megan glanced again at the obelisk, wondering if its passenger could not indeed read minds. And though she knew he was trying to be kind, she said, Well, maybe next time we work together you won't have to plant a bomb in my brain. She drew up the workspace a solitary chair and sat down. Taking her gloves by the fingers, she pulled them off and dropped them between her feet. The full weight of her exhaustion from labor and self-defense settled around her. She ran a hand through her dirty hair. Brill, she asked, looking at the obelisk. What year did you come from? The obelisk was silent. When no answer came, she hurried from the chair to the obelisk. Her hands were still sweaty from her gloves. Straining on tiptoes, she fumbled with the wingnut. The panel gave slightly, as if the obelisk had exhaled. As if more than the nut had been holding it in place. She jarred the panel loose with a bump of her bare fist and pulled it back to see only the rough angle iron frame and gray walls of the interior. The smell of singed hair filled the room once again. Months later, Megan could still only guess that Brill, on the maiden voyage of his theory, had had some idea how the translation process would affect him physically, how small the space inside was and how little air it held. 
It stood to reason, based on what little Megan understood of Brill's theory, that he would be pulled back into his own time. The way he came, the instant the isolation field was disrupted, the instant she loosened the wing nut, at least that's what she hoped had happened. In time, Megan began to include the obelisk in her shows, just the way she had been inspired to build it. Exactly the way she had been inspired to build it, in fact. A sort of monument to inspiration itself, regardless of where it comes from or the risks associated with it. She thinks of the obelisk as her own now, as Brill certainly has no more use for it, since the technology doesn't really work practically. But just in case, whenever she reassembles the obelisk for a show, she always makes sure to secure that last wing nut as tightly as she can. There you go. Thank you, Matthew. Fine story and a fine narration. I will be I will be in touch. Next up is Main Fiction, and it comes from Hanu Rajani. Now, Hanu, I might be getting that wrong, that name there. <laughs> Hanu's story first appeared in issue 218 of Interzone, and it's right up there on kind of one of the best of that year stories for Interzone. It was picked up by the readers. And like I say, I read this and just thought it was amazing, thought it would be making an amazing story. Hanu is director and co-founder of Think Tank Maths. He also writes science fiction and sometimes performs with the illustrious writer's block. He was born in Finland and spent seven years in Edinburgh. He studied mathematical physics at Cambridge and did a PH in string theory. Ho ho, clever guy. His short fiction has been featured in Finnish magazines, the anthology Nova Scotia and two best of year science fiction anthologies and in Postcards from Hell. He also has a little chapbook out called Words of Birth and Death. This is just a stunning tale, you know, genetically enhanced cat and dog. What can I say? It is narrated by Peter Pisa, a former award-winning journalist who now reports on technology for printers and scanners site of about.com while working full-time for an association of security professionals. He is also a fiction writer, went to New York University once upon a time and lived in and worked in South Korea, Thailand and Japan. He also narrates fiction and poetry over at LibriVox.org. And this is another fine narration. So, Starship Sova and her oral delights. Not long before the big announcement is very proud to present His Master's Voice by Hanu Rajani. His Master's Voice by Hanu Rajaniemi Read for Starship Sofa by Peter Piazza Before the concert, we steal the master's head. The necropolis is a dark forest of concrete mushrooms in the blue Antarctic night. We huddle inside the utility fog bubble attached to the steep southern wall of the Nunatak, the ice valley. The cat washes itself with a pink tongue. It reeks of infinite confidence. Get ready, I tell it. We don't have all night. It gives me a mildly offended look and dons its armor. The quantum dot fabric envelops its striped body like living oil. It purrs faintly and tests the diamond-bladed claws against an icy outcropping of rock. The sound grates my teeth and the razor-winged butterflies in my belly wake up. I look at the bright, impenetrable firewall 
of the city of the dead. It shimmers like chained northern lights in my AR vision. I decide that it's time to ask the big dog to bark. My helmet laser casts a one nanosecond prayer of light at the indigo sky, just enough to deliver one quantum bit up there into the wild. Then we wait. My tail wags and a low growl builds up in my belly. Right on schedule, it starts to rain. Red fractal code. My augmented reality vision goes down, unable to process the dense torrent of information falling upon the necropolis firewall like monsoon rain. The chained aurora borealis flicker and vanish. Go! I shout at the cat, wild joy exploding in me, the joy of running after the small animal of my dreams. Go now! The cat leaps into the void. The wings of the armor open and grab the icy wind, and the cat rides the draft down like a grinning Chinese kite. It's difficult to remember the beginning now. There were no words then, just sounds and smells, metal and brine, the steady drumming of waves against pontoons. And there were three perfect things in the world. My bowl, the ball, and the master's firm hand on my neck. I know now that the place was an old oil rig that the master had bought. It smelled bad when we arrived, stinging oil and chemicals, but there were hiding places, secret nooks and crannies. There was a helicopter landing pad where the master threw the ball for me. It fell into the sea many times, but the master's bots, small metal dragonflies, always fetched it when I couldn't. The master was a god. When he was angry, his voice was an invisible whip. His smell was a god smell that filled the world. While he worked, I barked at the seagulls or stalked the cat. We fought a few times, and I still have a pale scar on my nose, but we developed an understanding. The dark places of the rig belonged to the cat, and I reigned over the deck and the sky. We were the Hades and Apollo of the Master's realm. But at night, when the Master watched old movies or listened to records on his old rattling gramophone, we lay at his feet together. Sometimes the Master smelled lonely and let me sleep next to him in his small cabin, curled up in the god smell and warmth. It was a small world, but it was all we knew. The master spent a lot of time working, fingers dancing on the keyboard projected on his mahogany desk. And every night, he went to the room, the only place on the rig where I wasn't allowed. It was then that I started to dream about the small animal. I remember its smell even now, alluring and inexplicable, buried bones and fleeing rabbits, irresistible. In my dreams, I chased it along a sandy beach, a tasty trail of tiny footprints that I followed along bendy pathways and into tall grass. I, I never lost sight of it for more than a second. It was always just a flash of white fur just at the edge of my vision. One day, it spoke to me. Come, it said, come and learn. The small animal's island was full of lost places, Labyrinthine caves, lines drawn in sand that became words 
when I looked at them, smells that sang songs from the master's gramophone. It taught me, and I learned I was more awake every time I woke up. And when I saw the cat looking at the spider bots with a new awareness, I knew that it, too, went to a place at night. I came to understand what the master said when he spoke. The sounds that had only meant angry or happy before became the word of my God. He noticed, smiled, and ruffled my fur. After that, he started speaking to us more, me and the cat, during the long evenings when the sea beyond the windows was black as oil and the waves made the whole rig ring like a bell. His voice was dark as a well, deep and gentle. He spoke of an island, his home, an island in the middle of a great sea. I smelled bitterness, and for the first time I understood that there were always words behind words, never spoken. The cat catches the updraft perfectly. It floats still for a split second and then clings to the side of the tower. Its claws put the smart concrete to sleep, code that makes the building think that the cat is a bird or a shard of ice carried by the wind. The cat hisses and spits. The disassembler nanites from its stomach cling to the wall and start eating a round hole in it. The weight is excruciating. The cat locks the exomuscles of its armor and hangs there patiently. Finally, there's a mouth with jagged edges in the wall, and it slips in. My heart pounds as I switch from the AR view to the cat's iris cameras. It moves through the ventilation shaft like lightning, like an acrobat. Jerky, hyper-accelerated movements, metabolism on overdrive. My tail twitches again. We are coming, master, I think. We are coming. I lost my ball the day the wrong master came. I looked everywhere. I spent an entire day sniffing every corner and even braved the dark corridors of the cat's realm beneath a deck. But I could not find it. In the end, I got hungry and returned to the cabin. And... There were two masters, four hands stroking my coat, two gods, true and false. I barked. I did not know what to do. The cat looked at me with a mixture of pity and disdain and rubbed itself on both of their legs. Calm down, said one of the masters. Calm down. There are four of us now. I learned to tell them apart eventually. By that time, small animal had taught me to look beyond smells and appearances. The master I remembered was a middle-aged man with graying hair, stocky-bodied. The new master was young, barely a man, much slimmer, and with a face of a mahogany cherub. The master tried to convince me to play with the new master, but I did not want to. His smell was too familiar, everything else too alien. In my mind, I called him the wrong master. The two masters worked together, walked together, and spent a lot of time talking together, using words I did not understand. I was jealous. Once I even bit the wrong master. I was left on the deck for the night as a punishment, even though it was stormy and I was afraid of thunder. The cat, on the other hand, seemed to thrive in the wrong master's company and I hated it for it. I remember the first night the masters argued. Why did you do it? asked the wrong master. You know, said the master. 
You remember. His tone was dark. Because someone has to show them we own ourselves. So, you own me, said the wrong master. Is that what you think? Of course not, said the master. Why do you say that? Someone could claim that. You took a genetic algorithm and told it to make ten thousand of you with random variations. Pick the ones that would resemble your ideal son, the one you could love. Run until the machine runs out of capacity, then print. It's illegal, you know, for a reason. That's not what the plurals think. Besides, this is my place. The only laws here are mine. You've been talking to the plurals too much. They are no longer human. You sound just like Vectex PR bots. I sound like you. Your doubts. Are you sure you did the right thing? I'm not a Pinocchio. You're not a Geppetto. The master was quiet for a long time. What if I am, he finally said. Maybe we need Geppettos. Nobody creates anything new anymore, let alone wooden dolls that come to life. When I was young, we all thought something wonderful was on the way. Diamond children in the sky, angels out of machines, miracles. But we gave up just before the blue fairy came. I am not your miracle. Yes, you are. You should have at least made yourself a woman, said the wrong master, in a knife-like voice. It might have been less frustrating. I did not hear the blow. I felt it. The wrong master let out a cry, rushed out, and almost stumbled on me. The master watched him go. His lips moved, but I could not hear the words. I wanted to comfort him and made a little sound, but he did not even look at me, went back to the cabin, and locked the door. I scratched the door, but he did not open, and I went up to the deck to look for the ball again. Finally, the cat finds the master's chamber. It is full of heads. They float in the air, bodiless, suspended in diamond cylinders. The tower executes the command we sent into its drug nervous system, and one of the pillars begins to blink. Master, master, I sing, quietly as I see the cold blue face beneath the diamond. But at the same time, I know it's not the master, not yet. The cat reaches out with its prosthetic. The smart surface yields like a soap bubble. Careful now, careful, I say. The cat hisses angrily, but obeys spraying the head with preserver nanites and placing it gently into its gel-lined backpack. The necropolis is finally waking up. The damage the heavenly hacker did has almost been repaired. The cat heads for its escape route and goes quick time again. I feel its staccato heartbeat through our sensory link. It is time to turn out the lights. My eyes polarize to sunglass black. I lift the Goss launcher, marveling at the still tender feel of the Russian handgrafts. I pull the trigger. The launcher barely twitches in my grip, and a streak of light shoots up to the sky. The nuclear payload is tiny, barely a decaton, not even a proper plutonium warhead, but a hafnium micro-nuke. But it is enough to light a small sun above the mausoleum city for a moment, enough for a focused maser pulse that makes it as dead as its inhabitants for a moment. The light is a white 
glow, almost tangible in its intensity, and the gorge looks as if it is made of bright ivory. White noise hisses in my ears like the cat when it's angry. For me, smells were not just sensations, they were my reality. I know now that it is not far from the truth. Smells are molecules, parts of what they represent. The wrong master smelled wrong. It confused me at first, almost a god smell, but not quite. The smell of a fallen god. And he did fall, in the end. I slept on the master's couch when it happened. I woke up to bare feet shuffling on the carpet and heavy breathing, torn away from a dream of the little animal trying to teach me the multiplication table. The wrong master looked at me. Good boy, he said. I wanted to bark, but the godlike smell was too strong, and so I just wagged my tail, slowly, uncertainly. The wrong master sat on the couch next to me and scratched my ears absently. I remember you, he said. I know why he made you. A living childhood memory. He smiled and smelled friendlier than ever before. I know how that feels. Then he sighed, got up, and went into the room. And then I knew he was about to do something bad, and started barking as loudly as I could. The master woke up, and when the wrong master returned, he was waiting. What have you done? he asked, face chalk white. The wrong master gave him a defiant look. Just what you'd have done. You're the criminal, not me. Why should I suffer? You don't own me. I could kill you, said the master, and his anger made me whimper with fear. I could tell them I was you. They would believe me. Yes, said the wrong master, but you are not going to. The master sighed. No, he said, I am not. I take the dragonfly over the cryo-tower. I see the cat on the roof and whimper from relief. The plane lands lightly. I'm not much of a pilot, but the lobotomized mind of the daemon, an illegal copy of a 21st century jet ace, is. The cat climbs in and we shoot towards the stratosphere at Mach 5, wind caressing the plane's quantum dot skin. Well done, I tell the cat and wag my tail. It looks at me with yellow slanted eyes and curls up on its acceleration gel bed. I look at the container next to it. Is that a whiff of the god smell? Or is it just my imagination? In any case, it is enough to make me curl up in deep, happy dog sleep. And for the first time in years, I dream of the ball and the small animal, sliding down the ballistic orbit's steep back. They came from the sky before the sunrise. The master went up on the deck wearing a suit that smelled new. He had the cat in his lap. It purred quietly. The wrong master followed, hands behind his back. There were three machines, black-shelled scarabs with many legs and transparent wings. They came in low, raising a white-frothed wake behind them. The hum of their wings hurt my ears as they landed on the deck. The one in the middle vomited a cloud of mist that shimmered in the dim light, swirled in the air and became a black-skinned woman who had no smell. By then I had learned that things without a smell could still be dangerous, so I barked at her until the master told me to be quiet.
Mr. Takashi, she said, you know why we are here. The master nodded. You don't deny your guilt. I do, said the master. This raft is technically a sovereign state governed by my laws. Autogenesis is not a crime here. This raft was a sovereign state, said the woman. Now it belongs to Vectek. Justice is swift, Mr. Takashi. Our lawbots broke your constitution ten seconds after Mr. Takashi here, she nodded at the wrong master, told us about his situation. After that, we had no choice. The WIPO quantum judge we consulted has condemned you to the slow zone for 314 years, and as the wronged party, we have been granted execution rights in this matter. Do you have anything to say before we act? The master looked at the wrong master, face twisted like a mask of wax. Then he set the cat down gently and scratched my ears. Look after them, he told the wrong master. I'm ready. The beetle in the middle moved too fast for me to see. The master's grip on the loose skin of my neck tightened for a moment like my mother's teeth, and then let go. Something warm splattered on my coat, and there was a dark, deep smell of blood in the air. Then he fell. I saw his head in the floating soap bubble that one of the beetles swallowed. Another opened its belly for the wrong master. And then they were gone, and the cat and I were alone on the bloody deck. The cat wakes me when we dock with the Marquis of Carabas. The zeppelin swallows our dragonfly drone like a whale. It is a crystal cigar, and its nanospun sapphire spine glows faint blue. The fast city is a sky full of neon stars six kilometers below us, anchored to the airship with elevator cables. I can see the lift spiders climbing them far below and sigh with relief. The guests are still arriving, and we are not too late. I keep my personal firewall clamped shut. I know there's a torrent of messages waiting beyond. We rush straight to the lab. I prepare the scanner while the cat takes the master's head out, very, very carefully. The fractal bush of the scanner comes out of its nest, molecule-sized disassembler fingers bristling. I have to look away when it starts eating the master's face. I cheat and flee to VR to do what I do best. After half an hour, we're ready. The nanofab spits out black plastic discs, and the airship drones ferry them to the concert hall. The metallic butterflies in my belly return, and we head for the makeup salon. The sergeant is already there, waiting for us. Judging by the cigarette stumps on the floor, he's been waiting for a while. I wrinkle my nose at the stench. You are late says our manager. I hope you know what the hell you're doing. This show's got more digs than the Turin clone's birthday party. That's the idea, I say, and let Annette spray me with cosmetic fog. It tickles me and makes me sneeze, and I give the cat a jealous look. As usual, it is perfectly at home with its own image consultant. We're more popular than Jesus. They get the DJs on in a hurry, made by the last human tailor on Savile Row. "'This'll be good skin,' says Annette. "'Mahogany with a touch of purple.' She goes on, but I can't hear. The music is already in my head. The master's voice. 
The cat saved me. I don't know if it meant to do it or not. Even now I have a hard time understanding it. It hissed at me, its back arched. Then it jumped forward and scratched my nose. It burned like a piece of hot coal. That made me mad, weak as I was. I barked furiously and chased the cat around the deck. Finally I collapsed, exhausted, and realized that I was hungry. The auto kitchen and the master's cabin still work, and I knew how to ask for food. But when I came back, the master's body was gone. The waste disposal bots had thrown it into the sea. That's when I knew that he would not be coming back. I curled up in his bed alone that night. The god smell that lingered there was all I had. That and the small animal. It came to me that night on the dream shore, but I did not chase it this time. It sat on the sand, looked at me with its little red eyes, and waited. Why? I asked. Why did they take the master? You would not understand, it said. Not yet. I want to understand. I want to know. All right, it said. Everything you do, remember, think, smell, everything, leaves traces, like footprints in the sand. And it's possible to read them. Imagine that you follow another dog. You know where it has eaten and urinated and everything else that it has done. The humans can do that to mind prints. They can record them and make another you inside a machine like the scentless screen people that your master used to watch. Except that the screen dog will think it's you. Even though it has no smell, I asked, confused. It thinks it does. And if you know what you're doing, you can give it a new body as well. You could die and the copy would be so good that no one can tell the difference. Humans have been doing it for a long time. Your master was one of the first a long time ago. Far away, there are a lot of humans with machine bodies. Humans who never die. Humans with small bodies and big bodies, depending on how much they can afford to pay. People who have died and come back. I tried to understand. Without the smells, it was difficult. But its words awoke a mad hope. Does it mean that the master is coming back? I asked, panting. No, your master broke human law. When people discovered the paw prints of the mind... They started making copies of themselves. Some made many more than the grains of sand on the beach. That caused chaos. Every machine, every device everywhere had mad, dead minds in them. The plurals, people called them, and were afraid. And they had their reasons to be afraid. Imagine that your place had a thousand dogs, but only one ball. My ears flopped at the thought. That's how humans felt, said the small animal. And so they passed a law, only one copy per person. The humans, Vectek, who had invented how to make copies, mixed watermarks into people's minds, rights management software, that was supposed to stop the copying. But some humans, like your master, found out how to erase them. The wrong master, I said quietly. Yes said the small animal. He did not want to be an illegal copy. He turned your master in. 
I want the master back, I said, anger and longing beating their wings in my chest like caged birds. And so does the cat, said the small animal, gently. And it was only then that I saw the cat there, sitting next to me on the beach, eyes glimmering in the sun. It looked at me and let out a single conciliatory meow. After that, the small animal was with us every night, teaching. Music was my favorite. The small animal showed me how I could turn music into smells and find patterns in it, like the tracks of huge, strange animals. I studied the master's old records and the vast libraries of his virtual desk, and learned to remix them into smells that I found pleasant. I don't remember which one of us came up with a plan to save the master. Maybe it was the cat. I could only speak to it properly on the island of dreams, and see its thoughts appear as patterns on the sand. Maybe it was the small animal. Maybe it was me. After all the nights we spent talking about it, I no longer know. But that's where it began, on the island. That's where we became arrows, fired at a target. Finally, we were ready to leave. The master's robots and nanofacts spun us an open-source glider, a white-winged bird. In my last dream, the small animal said goodbye. It hummed to itself when I told it about our plans. Remember me in your dreams, it said. Are you not coming with us? I asked, bewildered. My place is here, it said, and it's my turn to sleep now, and to dream. Who are you? Not all the plurals disappeared. Some of them fled to space, made new worlds there. And there is a war on even now. Perhaps you will join us there one day, where the big dogs live. It laughed. For old time's sake? It dived into the waves and started running, became a great proud dog with a white coat, muscles flowing like water. And I followed for one last time. The sky was gray when we took off. The cat flew the plane using a neural interface goggles over its eyes. We sweeped over the dark waves and were underway. The raft became a small dirty spot in the sea. I watched it recede and realized that I'd never found my ball. Then there was a thunderclap, and a dark pillar of water rose up to the sky from where the raft had been. I didn't mourn. I knew that the small animal wasn't there anymore. The sun was setting when we came to the fast city. I knew what to expect from the small animal's lessons, but I could not imagine what it would be like. Mile-high skyscrapers that were self-contained worlds with their artificial plasma suns and bonsai parks and miniature shopping malls. Each of them housed a billion lilliputs, poor and quick, humans whose consciousness lived in a nanocomputer smaller than a fingertip. Immortals who could not afford to utilize the resources of the overpopulated Earth more than a mouse. The city was surrounded by a halo of glowing fairies, tiny-winged Morovex that flitted about like humanoid fireflies, and the waste heat from their overclocked bodies draped the city in an artificial twilight. The city mind steered us to a landing area. It was fortunate that the cat was flying. I just stared at the buzzing things with my mouth open afraid I'd drown into the sounds and the smells. We sold our plane for scrap and wandered into the bustle of the city, feeling like daikaju monsters. 
The social agents that the small animal had given me were obsolete, but they could still weave us into the ambient social networks. We needed money. We needed work. And so I became a musician. The ballroom is a hemisphere in the center of the airship. It is filled to capacity. Innumerable quick beings shimmer in the air like living candles, and the suits of the fleshed ones are no less exotic. A woman clad in nothing but autumn leaves smiles at me. Tinkerbell clones surround the cat. Our bodyguards, armed obsidian giants, open a way for us to the stage where the gramophones await. A rustle moves through the crowd. The air around us is pregnant with ghosts. The avatars of a million fleshless fans. I wag my tail. The scent space is intoxicating. Perfume, flesh bodies, the unsmells of Moravec bodies, and the fallen god smell of the wrong master, hiding somewhere within. We get on the stage on our hind legs, supported by prosthesis shoes. The gramophone forest looms behind us, their horns like flowers of brass and gold. We cheat, of course. The music is analog, and the gramophones are genuine. But the grooves in the black discs are barely a nanometer thick, and the needles are tipped with quantum dots. We take our bows, and the storm of handclaps begins. Thank you, I say, when the thunder of it finally dies. We have kept quiet. About the purpose of this concert, as long as possible. But I am finally in a position to tell you that this is a charity show. I smell the tension in the air, copper and iron. We miss someone, I say. He was called Shimoda Takeshi, and now he's gone. The cat lifts the conductor's baton and turns to face the gramophones. I follow and step into the sound space we've built, the place where music. Is smells and sounds. The master is in the music. It took five human years to get to the top. I learned to love the audiences. I could smell their emotions and create a mix of music for them that was just right. And soon I was no longer a giant dog DJ among lilliputs, but a little terrier in a forest of dancing human legs. The cat's gladiator career lasted a while, but soon it joined me as a performer in the virtual dramas I designed. We performed for the rich fleshies in the fast city, Tokyo and New York. I loved it. I howled at the earth and the sky, in the sea of tranquility. But I always knew that it was just the first phase of the plan. We turn him into music. Vectek owns his brain, his memories, his mind, but we own the music. Law is code. A billion people listening to our master's voice, billion minds downloading the law at home packets embedded in it, bombarding the quantum judges until they give him back. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever made. The cat stalks the genetic algorithm jungle, lets the themes grow, and then pounces them, devours them. I just chase them for the joy of the chase alone, not caring whether or not I catch them. It's our best show ever. Only when it's over, I realize that no one is listening. The audience is frozen. 
The fairies and the fast people float in the air like flies trapped in amber. The Moraviks are silent statues. Time stands still. The sound of one pair of hands clapping. I'm proud of you, says the wrong master. I fix my bow tie and smile a dog smile, a cold snake coiling in my belly. The god smell comes and tells me that I should throw myself onto the floor, wag my tail, bare my throat to the divine being standing before me. But I don't. Hello, nipper, the wrong master says. I clamp down the low growl rising in my throat and turn it into words. What did you do? We suspended them. Back doors in the hardware. Digital rights management. His mahogany face is still smooth. He does not look a day older, wearing a dark suit with a Vectec tie pin. But his eyes are tired. Really, I'm impressed. You covered your tracks admirably. We thought you were furries until I realized a distant thunder interrupts him. I promised him I'd look after you. That's why you're still alive. You don't have to do this. You don't owe him anything. Look at yourselves. Who would have thought that you could come this far? Are you going to throw that all away because of some atavistic sense of animal loyalty? Not that you have a choice, of course. The plan didn't work. The cat lets out a steam pipe hiss. You misunderstand, I say. The concert was just a diversion. The cat moves like a black and yellow flame. Its claws flash, and the wrong master's head comes off. I whimper at the aroma of blood polluting the god smell. The cat licks its lips. There is a crimson stain on its white shirt. The zeppelin shakes, pseudo-matter armor sparkling. The dark sky around the marquee is full of fire-breathing beetles. We rush past the human statues in the ballroom and into the laboratory. The cat does the dirty work, granting me a brief escape into virtual abstraction. I don't know how the master did it years ago, broke Vectec's copy protection watermarks. I can't do the same, no matter how much the small animal taught me. So I have to cheat, recover the marked parts from somewhere else. The wrong master's brain. The part of me that was born on the small animal's island takes over and fits the two patterns together like pieces of a puzzle. They fit, and for a brief moment, the master's voice is in my mind, for real this time. The cat is waiting already in its clawed battle suit, and I don my own. The Marquis of Carabas is dying around us. To send the master on his way, we have to disengage the armor. The cat meows faintly, and hands me something red. An old plastic ball with tooth marks, smelling of the sun and the sea, with a few grains of sand rattling inside. Thanks, I say. The cat says nothing, just opens a door into the zeppelin's skin. I whisper a command, and the master is underway in a neutrino stream, shooting up towards an island in a blue sea, where the gods and big dogs live forever. We dive through the door together, down into the light and flame. There you go. 
You know what I mean? It is, like you say, a bizarre, stunning story. Fantastic. You know what I mean? Don't forget, copyright is Hanus. And a big thank you to Peter for a fine narration. Right, here comes the big announcement. Starship Sova is, or Starship Sova's Oral Delights is 100 in about two weeks' time. We had to think of something special and something big, to, you know, to kind of celebrate that. Although, kind of, Starship Sova's been going for, bloody hell, only 2006, I think, was started. Or probably up to, kind of, if you counted all the shows I've put out at some time or the other, you know what I mean? You're probably talking 250, maybe 300 of the things, you know? I'm not too sure. But anyways, Starship Sova's Oral Delights, his birthday party is on... The 16th of September, that's the day when, if fingers crossed, everything goes right. That's when we're going to be celebrating the 100th edition of that show. And I had an idea, kind of, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, just two-dimensioned about the show. I had this idea, and I think it's still going to be that that show is going to be made up of small stories. You know, just maybe about four, five, how many I've got, kind of, on my hard disk, narrated, ready to go. I'm going to put in there as just like you know, five, ten-minute short stories and just make, like, a big montage of all these, like, amazing writers that have got, you know, lined up there with these amazing little bits of flash fiction or short stories. And that was the idea to celebrate. And that's still going to be the case. Then along comes D. Kunaifi. Now, D, I'm probably, again, getting that surname all totally mixed up. D emailed me, and it's probably about a week ago there now, put the suggestion out and says, Tony, why don't you, you know, like 100th edition, why don't you put out a PDF of some of the stories you've had on Starship so far, you know, like the Oral Delights? And, yeah, I thought it was a great idea. Do you know what I mean? I never kind of, you know, yes, yeah, good idea. Then he showed us his idea, and he made this little mock-up of, you know, like a story and, you know, a couple of pictures, and I'll, I'll go more into that detail. But I've never wanted to go down that way. Do you know what I mean? I've never wanted to kind of put out something like that, like, words because that's not my kind of domain you know what i mean these writers are giving the stories you know this is how they make their living by the actual words you know i'm there as a kind of promotional tool do you know what i mean go and listen to starships over that's that story in the audio format if you want to buy it in a collection or you know on its own this is my wares so that's always kind of put me at a kind of a, a brick wall do you know what i mean I've not, or a, a bridge or a river i've never wanted to cross that you know and get into that kind of realms of like works of fiction like that and actually put them in a pdf and get them out sent out around you know and it would always be kind of a free thing but then you know they kind of put this idea and sold us this thing of like releasing like a pdf and he had this idea and it like i say this is all d's work do you know what I mean don't get us wrong here you know I mean? These are, this is like d's designs and everything like that i'm just kind of you know the big chief that yep do that do that he suggested doing it in like a kind of 50s-style pulp kind of magazine format where you've got, you know, pictures inside. You've got like a, a really kind of vintage picture on on the front cover and you have like vintage little adverts in there, you know, dotted around as well. And then he said, you know, in his email, you know, you could even go down the kind of self-publishing way and, you know, publish a book on in that, you know, in the future. And then, you know, like I say, I've seen D's kind of layout and then it just it just snowballed from there. All of a sudden, I thought, you know, I'm hooked here. You know, I'm going to just try, I'll dip my toes in the water and I'll just try some of the writers I kind of, you know, I think it might, you know, might go there and might allow it. And 
it just again, like I say, it snowballed. And every writer, you know what I mean, has been so kind and just said, Tony, do you know what I mean? Go for it. And it's like I say, it's a celebration of reaching starships over reaching 100 and, you know, again, making some funds. So in a couple of weeks' time, Starship Sova will release her first Oral Delights anthology. And I am so happy, you know what I mean? This is like, wow, this gets to be like a book. And this is for everyone that's kind of supported Starship Sova, you know, like, well, anytime. Do you know what I mean? If you just come last week and started listening, if you were listening from day one when me and Kieran kicked off, this is a way to kind of think, you know, this is kind of special in a way that it's, there's going to be now a book came, comes out, you know, and it's like no big publisher, do you know what I mean? But I have got trust as like a stellar lineup of people there. And this will be the first, I'm guessing it's probably going to be the first, where it's a print-on-demand book anthology that hasn't got a publisher but has got this kind of calibre in writers, do you know what I mean? And it's stories that are played all along, you know, throughout the kind of 100th shows, you know, that I've just picked a kind of a group and it's not really... I didn't want to kind of pick the best of the best. You know, I wanted to pick stories that kind of have just been there throughout Starship Sova and have writers who have kind of helped and been generous. And like I say, I've got some cracking stories in there. But it's going to be the first one that's kind of this print-on-demand without a publisher, but with this big, you know, lineup. And it will be, well, not like a collector's edition, but it'll just be something that the Starship Sova community, you know, who've been, honestly, who've been fantastic, you know, can can get this book and think, you know what I mean? I helped get this book there because it is when it kind of, it boils down to it. If I didn't have the listeners, you know, I, I kind of wouldn't be doing it. It's as simple as that. And it's just like a, you know, to have like a Starship Sova, the first one, the anthology on your desk or on your bedside table, do you know what I mean? Not just like a, a, an audio file stuck on your iPod and then I'm, de- I'm, I'm deleted and I'm gone. Do you know what I mean? This is like, big thing like I said and this is why it's a big thing for me to have like an anthology and I'm so happy about it and like I say it's going to be in Lulu and there will be the kind of free ebook version and by all means you can take that and send you know please pass that on to as many people as you want you know what I mean that's just a that'll be like a little bird flying around on the internet, you know, spreading the wings of starships over and telling everyone, you know, about this kind of, what, this project. And I want to kind of push it to, you know, Helen back. And being the Tony C. Smith that I am, you know, I have roped in Skeet. Skeet's designing the kind of the book cover. And like I say, it's all going to have this kind of 50s real pulp feel to it. But Skeet's going to make the cover there and then there's images dotted throughout that Dee's getting a hold of. And then, you know, it doesn't end there. Then I roped in Josh, and Josh is building, like, a website. So you'll be able to go on Starship Sova, then, you know, link on from there, and it'll be it'll have its own little website as well. But the actual book, I mean, I've even got to buy the book. You know, that's, it's quite a bizarre, like, setup. You don't get any free copies or anything like that. So if I want one, I've got to go and buy one. And I'm aiming to kind of get it under... Like the kind of ten pound mark, or the you know, like kind of around about the, the nine pound mark, and um, the way it's you know, I've looked into Lulu, but the way it's going, I think I would make a kind of profit of four pound on a book of, of kind of that price. I'm not too sure. Like I say, I'll be open up front about kind of the costs and everything like that. But I think it's, it works out round about five six pounds actually print one book. Then Lulu take which Lulu actually take like a, a tiny amount off. Do you know what I mean for their kind of costs and profits? And then the rest, you know, all the rest goes to 
Starship Sova. And it is, again, like the you know the, the support designed here. This is just really a building block or a, a bedrock to get Starship Sova, you know, get some coffers into her backside and just celebrate Starship Sova and everyone being here and listening to the show, you know, reaching 100. So I will talk a little bit more next week about or this this anthology, Oral Delights number one. <laughs> and I'll hopefully by then I might have the kind of the complete lineup. You know, like I see, I've still got some requests going out and fingers crossed, you know, get everyone that's on, you know. So listen out next week. Please drop us some thoughts, drop us emails. You know, is this a good idea? Is this not a good idea? Am I wasting my time? Are you happy for Starships over hitting 100? Let me know. On that note, we will get to Matthew Sanborn Smith's Fiction Crawler. We've been away by popular demand and are now back without vengeance. And just look at you. You haven't been eating, have you? But like a double base, we are fretless. We'll fatten you up on the honeyed milk of the Fiction Crawler. Lie back and suckle upon her retrofitted teat. We did some shorties. We did some longies. This time we've got some oldies and greaties. A big thanks to John DiNardo and the gang at SF Signal for a recent mind meld they did asking people in the field what their favorite speculative fiction stories were. It made my search so much easier. These stories are either classics or someday will be. You may have read some of these, but maybe you should read them again. You may have read all of these, in which case I have to ask, why aren't you doing Fiction Crawler? We could have used you last month. Thanks for nothing, slacker. You want new cool science fiction? You get yourself some Ted Kosmatka, my friend. At tedkosmatka.com, you'll find his story, Divining Light. It's simple on the surface, but it stirs up some heavy-duty and chilling ideas. He takes an experiment that most geeks are familiar with and turns it into a metaphysical Turing test for living things. A brilliant alcoholic scientist who never really recovered from a breakdown years ago is given a second chance by a friend at a mighty research lab. Puttering for weeks, he finally finds something to occupy his mind, the famous experiment in quantum mechanics in which photons are fired through two slits in a screen. If the process goes unobserved, an interference pattern is produced by the waves coming through the slits. If the process is observed, a shotgun pattern is produced by the particles coming through the slits. A quantum state is determined by the observer, but just what constitutes an observer? The scientist and his science-filled cronies test a wide variety of life forms as potential observers, and the results steer their lives in the direction of madness and destruction. Kazmatka takes this classic experiment with mind-boggling results and carries it a disturbing step further, and a step further again, until our concept of causality and humanity is turned on its head. There's something about a Larry Niven story that's unlike any other authors I've ever read, Yes, the science is hard, the dangers are mortal, and all that good hard-nosed spacefaring stuff. But damn it, you get the sense that in Larry Niven's universe, somebody somewhere is having a really good time. You see characters drinking in another author's story, and you know they're wrestling with the Beelzebubs of lost lovers, deaths on their hands, and they're in a race with their livers to oblivion. But Niven's characters drink because, hey, baby, it's cocktail hour. Even when it isn't cocktail hour. Martinis and pickup lines for everyone. Neutron Star is a great introduction to Niven's work. Read it at unexploredworlds.com. It's short and hits upon some of Niven's recurring themes. Most of his stories are set in what's called the known space universe, including this one, and for the most part you can jump in anywhere. 
In this one, Beowulf Schaefer is a sharp-witted spacer for life, hired by an alien called a puppeteer, one of the most cowardly sentient species in the universe. This puppeteer happens to be an executive for General Products, makers of the toughest spaceship hulls in existence. Schaefer has the opportunity to get out from beneath crushing debt if he can figure out how one of these supposedly invulnerable ships was damaged near a neutron star. Also, maybe he'd be interested in finding out why its husband and wife crew were splattered all over the inside of that ship. How's he going to figure it out? By taking another supposedly invulnerable ship and flying it right toward the heart of that star. It's a puzzle in physics, and people smarter than me might figure it out before the reveal. This story was written back in the 60s. It doesn't feel that old, but it does feel like good fun science fiction. It's the kind of thing you listen to this show for, so go read it, and if you weren't a Niven fan before, you will be. I'm a dog person. If you are too, you know that dogs are loyalty incarnate. Even if you're a crappy person, you got a dog, you got a friend for life. Well, at least for the life of the dog, anyway. But you can always buy another. They're cheap, and new models come out every year. So what better creature to have as a soldier? Go to BradleyDenton.net and read the Sturgeon Award-winning Sergeant Chip by Bradley Denton. It's told as a letter dictated by an enhanced canine. Among other things, that letter tells an enemy commander that Chip has killed 18 of that commander's soldiers. Then we're taken back through a short history of Chip's military time with his trainer and best friend, Captain Dial. Chip is the best of the best, a hero even before Chip and Dial go off to war. And when they do head into the thick of it, Captain Dial does everything right and still everything goes wrong. Chip finds himself on his own with one final mission, an innocence to protect. A lot of people with a lot of weapons will do anything to stop him. But Chip will move mountains if that's what it takes to carry out his orders. He's a labradoodle with pit bull tenacity. And what does he want in return? Just a pat on the head and someone to tell him he's good. I like stories with badass good guys who threaten bad guys with every bit of confidence in their words and abilities. Take a super enhanced dog, train him to kill, and then piss him off. See what you'll get. Good dog, Chip. Since I was a little kid, I've wondered about one of the big questions. Matthew Sanborn Smith exists. Bear with me, I'm not at the question part yet. If we were to hit the restart button on the universe and everything ran through the same motions, at some point, Matthew Sanborn Smith would exist again. He has to exist. He's supposed to exist. And being a relatively intact human being, there has to be a conscious mind within him. Yes, yes, and yes. But, and here's the question part, why am I that consciousness? Maybe you'll see it better if you ask this about yourself. Things going as they did, the person you are had to exist. A consciousness had to occupy your mind. But why are you that consciousness? It's freaked me out for decades. I will not put down the peyote, and you better answer my question. Imagine a drug that separates your consciousness from the rest of your mind. Your body goes out about its business without you, does its work, has a good time, and you wake up after it's all over. Now imagine overdosing on that drug so that your consciousness splits down and never comes back. What's a brain to do but find someone else in your head to move in and take over? In Daryl Gregory's second person present tense at Asimovs.com, that's what happens to Teresa, now Terry, a 17-year-old who's been hospitalized for two years. Terry's a different consciousness that arose after Teresa checked out, and now it's time to go home to someone else's parents and pick up someone else's life. How would you feel being dropped suddenly into another person's life and having to tie up their loose ends? Terry's a Buddhist trying to fit in with her old fundamentalist Christian family and friends. She has Teresa's memories, but as far as she's concerned, that other girl died two years ago and she wants nothing to do with her or her people. 
As Terry navigates this situation, we learn how and why Teresa found her way into no one's land, and we explore the nature of consciousness in a way that gives my freaked-out me some little bit of comfort. All this from dark squiggles on a white screen. I like to think of myself as the literary love child of William Gibson, Philip K. Dick, and Harlan Ellison. I worship these guys, but I admit that's a three-way that'll make you go to sleep with the lights on. Passion pours out of Harlan Ellison's brain, mouth, and fingers like molten lava and spills all over the page. He is a bubbling acid that his bottle can't quite contain, and his story I'm setting you on to sports one of the best titles in all of fiction. I have no mouth and I must scream. This, along with the beast that shouted love at the heart of the world, is one of those stories that kicked me in the gut when I first read it and stuck with me forever after. You can find I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream at the Web Archive for Sci-Fiction. The story is as close to a science-fictional nightmare as you're ever going to get, a nightmare from which its characters will never wake up. The computer AM has become a god on Earth and destroyed nearly all of humankind. It despises us. More than that, it hates to be without us. It has kept five human beings alive to torture for its entertainment because it has nothing else to do. It warps their minds and mangles their flesh, visits horrors of every kind upon them. It's done so for over a century. The story concerns a quest for a stash of canned food somewhere under the North Pole. There could be nothing to it, but given the choice between a chance at real food and the garbage AM doles out, the people go. They go because it doesn't matter. Misery is everywhere, and just maybe this journey could bring some small relief. Along the way, we get a glimpse of hell and realize how unimaginable eternity really is. What becomes of people who are pushed beyond human limits but aren't allowed to die? And how do you take your revenge out on God? I marvel at Jeff Ryman once again for Pol Pot's beautiful daughter, which you can find at orionbooks.co.uk. Sith is a girl doing everything she can to forget a past that isn't really hers, but her father's. She's embarrassingly wealthy, and a Cambodia is still shell-shocked with the torrential deaths of the last few decades. Sith falls in love with a country boy while shopping to avoid the dead which haunt her constantly. And they don't haunt her in a metaphorical way. These ghosts impose themselves upon her through her technology. Her printer, her iPod, her 42 cell phones, and robot dog. They have stories to tell, and they will not be ignored. Sith knows that money can buy the love she wants and the escape she's always secretly begged for, but stupid reality insists on disagreeing with her. There's a learn-your-lesson love story going on here that's real rather than formulaic or sappy. Reading it for a second time, just before this writing, I found so many things that seemed hidden from me the first time that it was like another layer of story, not telling something different, but enhancing the taste of the whole thing. And it was warmer, and I want to read it again, and I want to hug this story. After you read these stories for yourself, get up and make sure you can still walk a straight line, because more than one of these tales could alter your perception of existence. Now run to your nearest computer and hammer on its keys, and if it's not your computer, hammer even harder, and scream thank yous to the fiction crawler for its wonderful bounty, especially if you're in a store. You'll make it until the rainy season comes once more, and as God is your witness, you'll never go fictionless again. This is Matthew Sanborn Smith calling for an end to the fruit fly violence. Stop pelting those apples! And may the 7.3 pleasures of the Orient be visited upon your cold, drab lives. Mwah. Matthew, thank you so much for that. And listen, it's been a bit of a hard time for Matthew of late. He's just last week lost his father. And Matthew, myself, and everyone at Starship Sova, and all the listeners, honestly, I know you've been having a bit of a, a bad time of late anyways, but 
just our deepest, deepest condolences for your loss of your father. I wish I could just come over there and just give you the biggest hug you could have, you know what I mean? I'm just so sorry, Matt, that, you know, this has kind of happened. You see, he lived to a kind of a ripe old age, and 80-something it was there, and that was like a ground <laughs> hope I can kind of get to that. But it's still, you know, like you say, he's your dad. And, again, I am just so gutted that it's happened to you. Do drop us an email again, by all means. So that is Oral Delights, show number 98. One more show, 99, and then The Big 100 with that release of her Oral Delights anthology number one. So there you go. Support your zines. Look out for Starship Sofa's very first anthology. Until next week, just like to say, good night from very happy Tony C. Smith. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, 